بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم نحمد نسلی اللہ رسول الکریم امباد الحمد للہ ٹوڈے از دا ففٹینتھ آف اپریل ان دا ایئر ٹو تھاؤزینڈ اینڈ ٹوینٹی تھری الحمد للہ ویڈ So inshallah going through up to and including verse 35. Before, mo- before moving on to verse 34, a few other clarifications with regards to verse 33. So in Ma'arif al-Quran, volume 3, page 133 of the English translation, Mufti Shafi, he said, Rahmatullah, according to the Islamic legal norm, The Islamic legal punishment will not be enforced against the offender because of the absence of the fourth witness. So this is in reference to zina, you need four witnesses. However, it does not mean that the offender will be allowed to walk out free of any obligation, lesson or penalty. The ruler of the time would rather award an appropriate penal punishment to him which would be in the form of lashes, or take the example of the punishment for theft. If there remains any shortfall or doubt in conditions fixed as the required proof of theft, the Islamic legal had punishment of cutting hands cannot be enforced. <coughs> This does not mean that the accused goes all untouched and free. On the contrary, other penal punishments will be given to him as warranted in his case. So the first thing Mufti Shafi mentions is that if the required witnesses are not coming forth, but there's a strong sense of guilt, that doesn't mean that he gets away or she gets away scot-free. The ruler can apply the azir, i.e. A, 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 a disciplinary punishment. Then Mufti Shafi Rahmatullah says on page 134, It should not be doubted that in the event the criminal charge with the homicide were to be set free after having been forgiven by the guardian of the person killed, killers would be emerged or encouraged and cases of homicide would become common. This doubt is unfounded because taking the life of the person who had killed was the right of the guardian of the person who was killed and he surrendered it by forgiving. But... Providing the security of life for other people is the right of the government. It can, to protect this right, sentence the killer for life or give him such other punishments in order to offset the danger posed by such a person to the lives of other people. So like I mentioned, the family can forgive even the one who's killed, one of their family members. But if the authority at the time thinks that this person is not safe to be around, they can still put the person in prison, though his life is spent. So, verse 33, the word muharaba is used. So, Mufti Shafi says in page 134, what does muharaba against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and spreading disorder in the earth mean? 
And to whom does this apply? The muhadaba is derived from harb and intrinsically means to rest or snatch away. In Arabic usage, it is used against salb, which means peace and security. So it's the complete opposite of the word peace. Thus, we can see that the sense of harb is the spreading of disorder. It is obvious that rare incidents of theft or rare incidents of killing and plundering do not cause public peace to be disturbed. In fact, this happens only when a powerful and organized group stands up to carry out acts of robbery, killing and plundering. Therefore, according to the Muslim jurists, the punishment in this verse is meant for a group or an individual who robs people and breaks the law of the land by the force of arms. For instance, a highway robber. This will not include those who indulge in common individual crimes, such as thieves and pickpockets. This is also in Tafsir Mazhari. <coughs> so, what, what, what was the Shaykh saying? What he's highlighting is that the verse 33 in Surah Maida is for those who basically spread disorder in the land. It's not for individual cases. Then he mentions on page 135. So simply put, for the Muharaba to be enforced, this refers to organized, systematic armed crime. So this refers to organized, systematic armed crime. Mufti Shafi then says, in short, the punishment mentioned in the verse 33 applies to robbers and rebels who ruin public peace by attacking with armed group force and break the law of the land openly. As obvious, this would appear in many forms. Everything from aggression against property and honor to killing and bloodshed is included within its sense. Then Mufti Shafi says, Rahmatullah page 136, these four punishments in verse 33 for the highway robber have been introduced by using the word O, which is also employed to give choice in a few things and for division in allotment of jobs too. Therefore, a group of companions, tabi'een and jurists of the Muslim ummah, by taking the word O in the sense of choice, has taken the position that the imam or the amir or the ruler has been legally given the choice to award all four punishments or any one of them as suitable in their case. So the verse is saying, if you translate it correctly, the punishment of those who wage war against Allah Ta'ala and His Messenger and strive with might and main mischief throughout the land is execution or crucifixion or the cutting of hands and feet from opposite sides or exile from the land. So one view of the scholars is that the ruler has a choice. He can apply all four punishments or whichever one he deems suitable. This is the view held by Imam Malik from amongst the four Imams and many of the Salaf. On the other hand, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi and Imam Ahmad and a group of the companions and Tabi'een have taken the word O in the sense of division of work. Thus, according to them, the sense of the verse is that there are different punishments 
which can be applied to various conditions of highway robbers and highway robberies. So like I mentioned yesterday, Imam Shaf, he said, depending upon the gravity of the crime, the punishments are to be given. Then he said later on, page 137, if these people have killed a Muslim or a non-Muslim citizen of Darul Islam, but did not loot property, their punishment is, that is, all of them should be killed, even though the act of killing was directly carried out by some of them only. So the three Imams, barring Imam Malik, they say that if a killing takes place, but not property being looted, then the only part of the verse that is applied is to kill. Then Mufti Shafi said, if they killed and looted both, their punishment is yusallam, they should be crucified. The form it should take is that they are hung, then their stomach be split with a spear or something else. There's a very gruesome death and that is for those who kill and loot. Number three, if they have participated in looting only, not killed anyone, their punishment is their right hands be cut from their wrists and their left feet from their ankles. Here too, though this act of looting may have been performed directly only by some of them, yet the punishment will remain just the same for all of them because whatever the doers of the act did, they did it with the trust and cooperation and assistance of their accomplices. Therefore, all of them are partners in the crime. So this is those who've looted but not killed. And number four, if they have not yet committed the crime of killing or plundering, but they intend it and they are arrested, their punishment is, they are exiled from the land. <coughs> so this is the, according to three of the imams. Then Mufti Shafi goes on to say, the sense of exiling from the land, according to a group of Muslim jurists, is that they should be turned out of Darul Islam. Others say that they should be turned out from the place where they committed the crime. But Umar Imr al-Khattab, he gave the verdict that the criminal be turned out from one place and left to roam free in another. This would bound to harass the people there. Therefore, the criminal should be locked up in a prison. This will become his exile or turning him out from the land from which he cannot cause any havoc. Imam Abu Hanifa adopted this view of Amir al-Mu'mini. So this is what's mentioned there. I mentioned it briefly yesterday. And at the end of the verse, look how interesting. What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? He says, ذَلِكَ لَهُمْ خِزْيٌ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَلَهُمْ فِي الْآخِرَةِ أَذَابٌ عَذِيمٌ the legal punishment to which they have been subjected here is humiliation for them in the world and certainly a token of punishment. As for the punishment of the Akhirat, that is much harsher and more lasting. This tells us that the punishments of Hudud, Kisas and Ta'zirat in this world do not lead to the forgiveness of punishments due to the Akhirat unless the person sentenced repents, makes a genuine Tawbah following which he could hope to have the punishment of the Akhirat forgiven. So why is this important to highlight? Allah Ta'ala explicitly says 
that this is their disgrace in the world and a heavy punishment is therein given to them in the hereafter. A heavy punishment is given to them in the hereafter. So some people say that if the hudud is applied, there's no punishment in the akhirat. It contradicts the Quran. Allah Ta'ala said that they're going to get punished in the akhirat. So Mufti Shafi explained that if a person repents, makes a genuine tawbah, then he can expect that that will be forgiven. Have you understood? Right? So this is a person who's caught. But of course, if a person hands himself in, that is part of repentance, which we'll mention uh, next. So all of this is helping to explain uh, the verse which I went through uh, yesterday. So verse 34. Except for those who repent before they fall into your power. In that case, know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is of forgiving, most merciful. So look how beautiful. You've committed any of those crimes. You've been a highway robber. You've committed rape. You've, you know, committed any sort of crime. But you have repented and you yourself voluntarily go to the authorities. Allah Ta'ala says they can expect the forgiveness. But now, Ibn Kathir mentions a few incidents which helps to explain. So in Ibn Kathir's Tafsir, Volume 3, page 166, he's referring to verse 34. He goes, this verse is a clear indication it applies to idolaters. As for the Muslims who commit this crime and repent before they are apprehended, the punishment of killing, crucifixion, cutting the limbs will also be waived. The practice of the companions in this regard is that all punishments prescribed in the case will be waived, as is apparent from the word. So what's the first thing uh, Hafiz ibn Kadir mentions? He says that if a person comes to the authorities before he's caught, none of the punishments apply to him, <coughs> which are mentioned in that verse. Then he gives three examples. The first is recorded in Ibn Abi Hatim, Ibn Jarir and Ibn Kathir's tafsir. So the report mentions. Imam Sha'bi, he said, Rahmatullahi, Haritha ibn Badr al-Tamimi. He was living in al-Basra. He committed the crime of mischief in Basra. So he talked to some men from the Quraysh, such as Hassan ibn Ali, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Jafar, and they talked to Ali about him so that he could grant him safety. But Ali refused. Thus Haritha went to Saeed ibn Qais al-Hamadani, who kept him in his own dwelling. He goes, wait here. And he went to Ali, he goes, Amir al-Mu'mineen. What about those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and cause mischief in the land? And then he recited this verse, verse 34. Except for those who come back with repentance before they fall into your power. Because what about that verse? So Ali smiled. He wrote a document that granted safety. And Saeed ibn Iqay said, this is for Haritha ibn Ibn So look how interesting. A man who had committed the great crime, a man who had committed the great crime of causing disorder in Basra, he went to some of the Ahlul Bayt, Ai Hassan, the grandson of the Prophet Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Jafar, and he goes, go to the Amir al-Mu'mineen and say, look, I've repented. Have I got safety? And Ali first refused. Ali radiyallahu he first refused. But then when that same man went to another noble called Saeed ibn Iqais, he reminded Amir al-Mu'mineen of verse 34. 
When Hazrat Ali was brought to attention this verse, he goes, he's been given safety. So what does that prove? That proves if you hang yourself in, before you are caught, you repent, the punishment cannot be applied to you. So here's one proof. In a second, in Ibn Jarir and Ibn Kathir's tafsir, Imam Sha'bi, he said, Rahmatullah a man from Murad, his name's not mentioned, there's a man from Murad, came to Abu Musa al-Ashri, and he was the governor of Kufa during the Khalifa of Uthman. So he's in Kufa, Abu Musa, he's the governor. A man from Murad came to him and said, O Abu Musa, I seek your help. I am so-and-so from Murad. I wage war against Allah Ta'ala and his messenger. I caused mischief in the land. I repented before you have any authority over me. Abu Musa radiallahu proclaimed to everybody, this is so-and-so. He has waged war against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa and caused mischief in the land. He repented before we had authority over him. Therefore, anyone who meets him should deal with him in a good way. If he is telling the truth, then this is the path of those who say the truth. If he is lying, his sins will destroy him. So Abu Musa said, he is a free man. He came, he's repented, but if he is lying, it's going to destroy him. The report continues. The man remained idle for as long as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala willed, but he later rose against the leaders. And Allah the Almighty punished him for his sins and he was killed. So this man wasn't genuine. But because he went through the, the letter of the law, he couldn't be punished. But later on, he showed his true colors. He was caught, he was killed. Ibn Kathir gives a third example in Ibn Jarir, Ibn, Ibn Kathir's tafsir. That Musa ibn Ishaq al-Madani said that Ali al-Asadi, so this is the name, Ali al-Asadi, he waged war, he blocked the roads, he shed blood, he plundered wealth. The leaders and the people alike, they were trying to capture him. They could not until he repented after he heard a verse being recited. It's the famous verse in Surah Zumar. O my servants who have transgressed against yourselves, do not despair of the mercy of Allah. Allah Ta'ala forgives all sins. He is of forgiving most merciful. So this man had committed all sorts of crimes. He heard that verse. He goes, Allah Ta'ala goes, don't despair. There's hope for me. So he said to that man, read the verse again. He recited the verse again. Ali, Ali al-Asadi, he put down his sword. He traveled to Al-Madinah in repentance, arriving during the night. He did ghusl. He went to the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa He offered the fajr. He then went next to Abu Huraira The people recognized him because you are the one who's caused mischief. He said, you have nothing against me. I have come in repentance before you, had any authority over me. Abu Huraira said, he has spoken the truth. He held his hand, he went to Marwan ibn al-Hakam, who was the governor of Medina during the reign of Muawiyah. Abu Huraira said, this is Ali al-Asadi. He came in repentance, you do not have a way against him, nor can you have him killed. So he was absolved of punishment and remained on his repentance. And later he went on jihad and see. The Muslims met the Romans in battle and the Muslims brought the ship Ali was into one of the Roman ships. Ali bravely crossed to that ship showing his bravery and the Romans escaped from him to the other side of the ship 
and the ship capsized and they all drowned. So simply put, he was genuine, he repented, he did jihad and he showed the great prodigies of valor. So why did Ibn Kathir mention all these three? He's saying this is the proof of this verse. If they come before they are caught, it was then you have no authority against them. But there's a very famous example of a person which you should all know. Which person create, created great mischief and disorder? But he came to the authorities before they caught him. Right? When you think of Ali Bey Klu, it's during Uthman's Khalifa. Oh, the son of Abu Bakr? Yes. MashaAllah. Right? The son of Abu Bakr? He brought the assassins in to kill Uthman. And then Allah saved him at the critical moment, but it was too late. And then what happened? He voluntarily handed himself in. To who? Hazrat Ali. And he asked him, what happened? And he told him, because I came, I had intentions, but Allah Ta'ala, he reminded me of my father. I repented and I've come to you. Did Ali execute him? Crucify him? Cut open his stomach? Nothing. In fact, he kept him close. And he later made him the governor of Egypt. So notice, these are all proofs, right? But if he had been called prior to that, then the punishment would have been, you know, applied to him. Now think about that. Most of us will never commit those crimes. You know, we commit, you know, crimes, but will we become highway robbers? Right? Will we go around raping women? Will we do this and that? So the response to that is, if Allah has given them an avenue for mercy, then they should give us great hope for the mercy of Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Verse 35, just to make a start of it. O you who believe, do your duty to Allah and seek a wasila to Him and strive with might and main in His cause that you are successful. So now what's interesting about this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He's saying, O you who believe, fear your Lord, seek a wasila to Him. And strive with your utmost cause so you'll be successful. So the command is to seek a wasila. So what's strange about this? Some people don't believe in wasila. <laughs> so the so reality is they don't believe in the Quran. Allah Ta'ala says clearly in verse 35 of Surah Maida, seek a wasila. So there must be a wasila which is being referred to. So what's the wasila? So in Ma'rif al-Qur'an, volume 3, page 143, Mufti Shafi, he gives a few examples here. He says, the course of hadith, the hadith is in Hakim, and he said, Hudayfa he explained, wasila here means, obedience, nearness. So when you do any good deed, that is your wasila to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So for instance, what does he mean by that? You say, Ya Allah, forgive me. Because I'm fasting in the month of Ramadan. That's a wasila. Ya Allah, forgive me. Because I'm reading the Quran. I've read the Quran. So Hudayfa says, this is what wasila means here. It means obedience. The same is recorded by uh, Hassan al-Basri, Mujahid Ata in Ibn Jarib. Then he calls a hadith. He then says, the gist of this explanation of the verse is that one should seek nearness of Allah with iman and good deeds. So look how strange. 
your iman and your good deeds is a wasila to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's your excuse. Ya Allah, forgive me. Then he quotes a hadith. In Imam Ahmad's Musnad Sahih, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, wasila is a high rank of paradise, above which there is no rank. You should supplicate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he gives me that rank. So now what's wasila? Wasila got nothing to do with you. Wasila is that unique rank, the highest rank in paradise. And Rasulullah humbly told us, make dua that I be given that wasila. Then he quotes another hadith in Sayyid Muslim. The Prophet said, when the Mu'addin does the azan, repeat what he says, then recite the durood and ask that I be blessed with the wasila. So what do you say? Allahumma rabba hazihi da'wad al-tamati was salat al-ka'mati Aati Muhammadan al-wasila wal-fadila wa ba'asso maqabam mahmudan al-lazi wa attahu innaka la tukhlifu al-mi'ad You're asking for wasila. Because the Prophet said, ask to give me this. So then Mufti Shafi says, these hadith tell us that wasila is a special rank in paradise which is particular for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But the command to seek and find wasila in the verse is for every believer. So there seems to be a con... Uh, a, a, what do you call it? A contradiction between the Quran and the Sunnah. So Mufti Shafi, he explained, but the answer is clear. The high rank of wasila is particular to Rasulullah. And all ranks after it are open and common to all believers through their linkage of their love for him. So wasila is unique. He gets it, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the, the highest rank in paradise. So why is Allah telling us, oh you who believe, seek a wasila? Where do we fit into that? So Mufti Shafi said, we fit into that because there's other ranks after that. After the prophets and the great ones, there's ranks open to all. But how do we acquire it? He goes, through our love for him. That's why the word is wasila in the Quran. Allah has left it for the prophet in the hadith. But in the Quran, he kept that word. So through our love for him, this is how we get the wasila which Allah Ta'ala is telling us. Seek that wasila. So what is he really telling us? Love Rasulullah. You will get the wasila. But now, what is love? <laughs> Everybody goes, I love the Prophet, I love the Prophet. So like I mentioned again and again, there's four signs from revelation that you love the Prophet. So you can gauge where you stand. So first of all, we all love the Prophet. There's no doubt we love the Prophet. So there's no doubt about that. But can you honestly say your love is the same as Abu Bakr's? So obviously you're going to say no to that. So what's the difference? You apply this gauge, you know where you stand. The first sign of love is emulation. Allah Ta'ala says in Surah Ali Imran, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِ يُحْبِبْكُمُ اللَّهِ Say, if you love Allah, Subhanahu wa ta'ala, follow Rasulullah. He will love you, he will forgive you. So stay away. Our emulation, so it's different. You'll get the awliyas, every sunnah, obsessed. So their love for the Prophet is greater. The proof in the pudding. You look at us, 10%, 5%, 2%, 1% something, mashallah, you got something. But you can gauge your love. That's why the awliyas are obsessed with the du'as of the Prophet. They'll get all the du'as of the Prophet for every occasion. Wind blows, du'a, toilet du'a, kuminat du'a, du'a for this, du'a for that. 
You think, what's this? It's love. That's number one. The second, the Prophet said in Abu Na'im al-Hiliya, if you love something, you mention it much. Somebody goes, how often do you mention the Prophet? There's your love. The Sahaba, day and night, they couldn't think of anything except the Prophet Then you look at us, 2%, 1%, 0.95%, something, mashallah, right? But you got to work on that. You mention it much. If you if you know a person talks about the Prophet more, he loves the Prophet more. That's a proof. Third sign of love is knowing as much as possible about them. You're obsessed with learning about them. Where's the proof? In Sayyid Bukhari, many proof, I'll give you one. This man was praying, and he wasn't praying, you know, perfectly. There was something wrong with his salat. So Abdullah ibn Umar anhuma, he said, hasn't his father taught him how to pray salat? So somebody looked at Abdullah ibn Umar. He goes, that's Osama's son. So oh, he said, it's Barakah's grandson. So Ibn Umar's face changed. He goes, Subhanallah. He goes, Rasulullah would definitely have loved him. And I don't know who he is. Because he loved Barakah, he loved Osama. So what was Ibn Umar teaching? He was teaching, what sort of love is that? I don't even know the person whom Rasulullah loves. So what was he teaching? Knowledge. You need to know who the person is. You, you know, whatever he loved, I love that. Knowledge about him. Now you ask a person basic questions. You know, you say, look, you look, I love the Prophet. Where was he born? The guy starts looking at space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saudi Arabia, right? Be more specific, right? And he goes, and he's struggling. Right? Born in Makkah. Where did he pass away? Makkah, no, Medina. How old was he? When did he see Nabu? These are signs of love. And the fourth sign is loving what they love. In Tabarani Sahih, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, If I knew that Umar loved this dog, I would love that dog. That's from the Sahaba, from the Prophet, even examples, many examples. One of the companions, he noticed that the Prophet loved pumpkin. He, you know, he, he searched for pumpkin. Kaddu, we call it Kaddu. Anas then said, I love pumpkin. I noticed the Prophet loved it, so I love it. Now think about that. He might not have had a liking for pumpkin. But because he knew the Prophet loved it, he turned to it. So again, the, the four signs. Emulation. Mentioning much. Knowing as much as possible and loving what they love. So what does Allah say in the Quran? He's telling you to do that. It's a direct command. All you who believe, do your duty to Allah. Seek the wasila to Him. And strive with it, with a mighty striving, that you may be successful. What's happened to the Muslims? They start arguing over Wasila. I don't believe in Wasila, right? What planet are you on, brother? So, Lord Mufti Shafi, this was his commentary on this verse, and note how beautiful it is. And that's why the Prophet said, Make dua for my Wasila. I'll be given that rank given uh, on that awesome day. And there's more to that verse, but I will mention it tomorrow, inshallah. So I'll recite the verse, the two verses, and we will conclude. Odi Milla Imna Shaitan Rajim, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Illa Ladina Tabu Min Kabli Antabdilu Alayhim, 